Thank you, <clears throat> thank you, Kylie, for that prayer about preaching the word. It's it's interesting, I guess, supernatural that once I realized I was preaching this week <clears throat> on the topic of uh, <laughs> preaching not only from the Bible but about the Bible, that a day or two later I read a blog by a friend of mine, who uh, former professor at one of our seminaries, uh, about her heart breaking over what's going on in the Reformed Church and other denominations, which certainly a lot of us share. But the thrust of her article was that implying the cause was that there are some, like myself, who place high value on the purity of the Word and the purity of the Church. And as there were comments that came following it, and there were many, to the point where I refused to read all of them, many of the comments said, Yes, we could really do without those people who bully others with the Bible by claiming the purity of the Bible and the purity of the church. After I got rid of my anger, I did pray and decided I would continue to preach today, hopefully not bullying, but boldly proclaiming the word. So let's do that together. Turn to, first of all, the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 55, we'll read the first 13 verses, and then we'll also turn to a portion of Second Peter. Let us hear the word, Isaiah, the 55th chapter. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen. Listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen, that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering of the earth and making it blood and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn brush will grow the juniper. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. And then from second letter of Peter, the first chapter, beginning at verse 12. 
So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the, from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord our God, Speak. Carry me in my words that they may be yours through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Some of us here remember a man by the name of David Frost. How many remember David Frost? A few of us. More than a few. David Frost, for those of you who weren't around at that point in time in your life, was a newscaster who did tremendous interviews. He was a good, great interviewer. Charles Colson was once scheduled to be a guest on David Frost's show. He was invited to come and debate the famed atheist, the militant anti-Christian Madeleine Murray O'Hare. Charles Colson said that as he prepared for that debate, he discovered that Madeleine Murray O'Hare loved to cleverly, though inaccurately, even quote the scriptures in defense of her anti-Christian militant views. So he decided he would take his Bible along to the debate. Here's what he later wrote. From the opening round, Mrs. O'Hare was true to form, angrily spitting invectives at Christians in general and me in particular. When I was speaking and she was off camera, she contorted her face and made obnoxious gestures in a coarse effort to distract me. Aggressively interrupting, glibly misquoting scripture, she scored her blows early to the crowd's delight. I kept my Bible unobtrusively at my side, but when she shouted, The Bible teaches you to kill, I leaned across a startled David Frost and thrust my Bible at her. Wait a minute, I demanded. You know this book, Mrs. O'Hare. Find where it says that. Read it to me. She blanched. For a moment she groped for words, then drew back in her chair, shaking her head furiously. I thrust the leather-covered book toward her once more. She recoiled again. Even in the heat of the moment, I was struck by her absolute refusal to touch the Bible. Every time I read this, I get a very queasy feeling. Because I wonder if this 
atheist, anti-militant Christian had more respect and awe and fear for the Bible than do many Christians. Consider these statistics from recent research. Recent research shows that the percentage of Americans who believe that the Bible is the inspired, true Word of God is down 21 percentage points since 2000. Research shows that only 40% of those who identify as evangelical, born-again Christians hold the entire Bible as the actual Word of God, while 51% consider only parts of the Bible as the inspired Word of God. Surprisingly, 8% of evangelicals stated that the Bible was an ancient book of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by man. And the study found that while a majority of America's self-identified Christians, people like you and me, believe that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and is the creator of the universe, more than half reject a number of biblical teachings and principles, including the existence of the Holy Spirit. So the question this morning is, how do you view the Bible? Your answer to that question lays the groundwork for your worldview. The Bible is either authoritative, truth-filled word of God, or is it, it is just another book about a philosophy of life. There is no in-between. And so I ask the question again, how do you view the Bible? Taking our cue from the Apostle Peter this morning, we will consider the reliability and uniqueness of the Bible, the Word of God. So let's look first at the reliability of the Bible. The truth is that when compared with all other literature throughout history, the Bible stands head and shoulders alone. First of all, the Bible has unity through its authorship and its continuity, unlike any other book. To set the stage for thinking about it, think about the assassination of either President Lincoln or President Kennedy. Go to five historians and ask them to give you the account of either one of those assassinations, and you will not get the same five stories. Each one has something different to add. It's not the case with the Bible. Think about the Bible. It was written over a period of 1,600 years, over... 60 generations on three continents by 40 different people from every walk of life, including Moses, a political leader, Amos, a herdsman, Joshua, a military general, Nehemiah, a cupbearer, Solomon, a king, Daniel, a prime minister, Matthew, a tax collector, Luke, a doctor, Peter, a fisherman, and Paul, a rabbi. And it's not that they were each given a private room in which they could sit down and write and confer with one another. No, it was written in different places under different real-life circumstances. Moses in the wilderness. Jeremiah in a dungeon. Daniel on a hillside and in a palace. Paul inside prison walls. Luke while traveling as a doctor. John exiled on the island of Patmos. David in times of war. Solomon in times of peace. And yet each book of the Bible is related, interrelated, and reflects the essential meanings of the other books. It's as if one author sat down and wrote them all. 
The phrase I love to use when I teach through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation about the Testaments is, the new is in the old contained. The New Testament's in the old, and the old is in the new explained. They complement one another. They rely on one another. To try to grasp that significance a little more, let's think of it this way. Suppose I asked 40 people to go anywhere they want to in the world and find the most beautiful leaf they could find. They're not to communicate with each other, just go find the most beautiful leaf they could find. And then we would come together on a certain day in a certain place and I would ask them to lay them out on the floor. And suppose they did that and as they laid them out on the floor, each leaf interlocked perfectly with another and a beautiful tree was formed. Now what are the odds of that happening? And yet think of the Bible and its unity. It's but a tiny glimpse of the astonishing unity of the Bible itself. But the Bible is also reliable because of its durability. In spite of efforts, the Bible is deathless. Believers have neglected it, ignored it, tried to turn it, retranslate it. Others have tried to destroy it, to outlaw it, to pervert it, and yet it is still the world's bestseller. It's an inspiration for the world's art and literature. It's been translated into thousands of languages. It's been an integral part of Western education. It's played a significant role in world civilization. No matter what happens, the Bible continues to live on. And yet, the Bible is also reliable in that it's based on factual evidence. There are literally thousands of ancient manuscripts that attest to the textual integrity of the Bible, significantly more than any other ancient writings. Researcher and biblical scholar Norman Geisler wrote, The Bible is the most accurately translated book from the ancient world. No other ancient book has as many, as early, or more accurately copied manuscripts. The vast number Early dates and unmatched accuracy of the Old and New Testament manuscript copies established the Bible's reliability well beyond that of any other ancient book. Harold Salah, who wrote a book called Why You Can Have Confidence in the Bible, said the Bible is the best preserved and best documented book in the world. But that's not all. The Bible is also reliable because of its historical accuracy. The extensive chronologies of the kings of Israel and Judah are verified and trustworthy. Ancient historians support much of the history of the Bible and write it in their history books. Consider just the fact that none of the miracles in the New Testament were ever refuted or proven false. And the New Testament goes to great lengths to name witnesses to much of what took place. Consider this. In World War I, A Bible-reading British major surprised and decimated a Turkish force in Palestine by attacking them through the same narrow mountain pass which Saul and Jonathan used to go after the Philistines centuries earlier. He learned it from the Bible in 1 Samuel 14, 5. It led him to the passageway. Historical accuracy. In addition, there is archaeological accuracy. Archaeology affirms the reality of the Bible. Archaeology has supported and continues to support and verify historical events and data found in the Bible. 
It has indeed helped to show that the culture and the persons and the events of the Bible are trustworthy. Nelson Gluck wrote, It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail the historical statements in the Bible. By the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. Let me share just three of those. In the 20th century, an archaeologist followed the information in the book of Kings about brass being offered to Solomon being cast into the ground. It led him to the discovery of what is now known as King Solomon's Mines. Or consider an industrialist who realized that the description of the smoke that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah was said in the Bible to be as the smoke of a furnace. Based on that, he led geologists to the discovery of oil, and Israel's first oil well was drilled in 1953. Thirdly, evidence exists that the walls of Jericho, in fact, did implode and collapse suddenly. One biblical scholar has stated that whenever anything has been on earth that has to do with a name, an event, or a place of the Bible, it simply vindicated the Bible. But that's not all. The Bible's reliable because of scientific evidence. Let me just give you two verses. One, Isaiah 40, 22, the prophet states, He, God, sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. You say, what's scientific about that? It means centuries before the debate over the shape of the earth, Isaiah gave us the shape of the earth. That's pretty scientific, don't you think? Or Genesis 2-7. And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. How is that scientific? Well, the fact is the same 14 chemical elements that make up the human body are those that compose the dust of the earth. The Bible may be about redemption and about love, But when the Bible speaks about science, it's accurate. So much so that an agnostic scientist named Robert Jastrow wrote a book called God and the Astronomers, and in it he said, A sound explanation may exist for the explosive birth of our universe, but if it does, science cannot find out what the explanation is. The scientist's pursuit of the past ends in the moment of creation. This is an exceedingly strange development, unexpected by all but the theologians. They have always accepted the word of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The development is unexpected because science has had such extraordinary success in tracing the chain of cause and effect backward in time. We would like to pursue that inquiry further back in time, but we will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Scientific evidence. The Bible is reliable. But that's not all. There's also prophetic fulfillment. Throughout his life, Jesus repeatedly would quote the Old Testament and quote the prophets and say that it was pointing to him, that he was the fulfillment of prophecy. 
Now, scholars may differ in terms of how many prophetic things there are that refer to Jesus in the Old Testament, but basically there's somewhere over 300 prophecies concerning various aspects of Christ's life on earth, and Christ came and the New Testament shows how he fulfilled them all. Now, what are the odds of that happening? A couple of illustrations. If you take just eight of those prophecies and find that they were fulfilled in Jesus, the mathematical equation of that happening is 1 times 10 to the 17th power. To give you a glimpse of that, it's 1 with 17 zeros after it. Now, I know that's hard to get a few for, so think of the state of Texas. If Texas was covered completely, if you went down to Texas and covered it completely with silver dollars to a thickness of 12 inches, and ahead of time you had placed a red X on just one of those silver dollars, the odds of somebody jumping in once in the middle of that pile somewhere in the state of Texas and coming up with that red X silver dollar is the same odds as eight prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus. And the reality is over 300 were. As Harold Sala concludes, either the prophecies of the Bible have been fraudulently created, written after the fact, fabricating history so it appears to have been written before the event, where God, through his Holy Spirit, revealed things to men that are impossible to predict apart from supernatural knowledge. And that brings us to our theme for the day. The Bible is not only reliable, the Bible is unique because it is supernatural. From Genesis to Revelation, the biblical writers say they wrote under divine inspiration. In the Old Testament alone, the expression the Lord said or the Lord spoke occurs over 2,000 times. I like the succinct way that Dr. John Stott put it. The term inspiration means the words that were spoken were actually breathed out of God's mouth. We cannot escape it. It's the plain teaching of 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is God-breathed, breathed out from his mouth. Hence the formula is the word of the Lord came to me saying or thus says the Lord and the comparable claim of the apostles to be bearers or speakers of God's word. So we go back to our passage in Peter. You must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter was a fisherman, and the word he used for carried is the wind blowing into the sail that carries along the ships. So he's saying that God, in his wind and his breath, carried along the writers as they wrote the words of Scripture. And that's why, speaking of uniqueness and supernatural, the entire Bible points from cover to cover to Jesus Christ and is fulfilled in him. Jesus' own words, Luke 24, 44. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Every book in the Bible portrays some aspect of Jesus' life and character. One pastor has put it very poignantly. Are you ready for this? In Genesis, he is the seed of the woman. 
In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is our high priest. In Numbers, he is the star of David. In Deuteronomy, he is the rock. In Joshua, he is the captain of the Lord's host. In Judges, he's the sword of Gideon. In Ruth, he's the kinsman redeemer. In Samuel, he's the seed of David. In Kings, he is the Lord God of Israel. In Chronicles, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. In Ezra, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. In Nehemiah, he is the restorer. In Esther, he is the God of providence. In Job, he is the adjudicator. In Psalms, he is the King of glory. In Proverbs, he is the wisdom of God. In Ecclesiastes, he is the creator. In Song of Solomon, he is altogether lovely. In Isaiah, he is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In Jeremiah, he is the Lord, our righteousness. In Lamentations, he's the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he's the wheel in the wheel. In Daniel, he's the fourth man in the fire. In Hosea, he's the Lord God of hosts. In Joel, he is the hope of his people. In Amos, he is the God of hosts. In Obadiah, he is the destroyer of the proud. In Jonah, he is the God of the second chance. In Micah, he's the God of Jacob. In Nahum, he's the avenging God. In Habakkuk, he is the everlasting glorious God. In Zephaniah, he is the king of Israel. In Haggai, he is the desire of all nations. In Zechariah, he is the one pierced in the house of his friends. In Malachi, he is the Lord of Remembrance. In Matthew, he is the king of the Jews. In Mark, he is the servant. In Luke, he is the son of man. In John, he is the eternal God. In Acts, he is the ascended Lord. In Romans, he is the Lord of Righteousness. In Corinthians, he is our sufficiency. In Galatians, he is our liberator. In Ephesians, he is the head of the church. In Philippians, he is our strength. In Colossians, he is the fullness of the Godhead. In Thessalonians, he is the coming Christ. In Timothy, he's the mediator between God and man. In Titus, he's the great God and Savior. In Hebrews, he's the captain of our salvation. In James, he's the great physician. In Peter, is the unblemished lamb. In John, is the advocate. In June, he is the Lord that comes with 10,000 saints. And in Revelation, in Revelation, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the Lion of Judah, the bright and morning star, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, and the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. My friends, that is inexplicable and unbelievable. It's supernatural. All Scripture is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the living Word of God. The Bible is reliable. It is the supernatural Word of God. So what? So it should not be surprising that the supernatural Word is powerful. The Bible is transformational. Jeremiah thirteen nineteen is not my word like fire declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. Hebrews four twelve for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Listen again to one of my bedrock verses of Scripture, Isaiah 55. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, making it blood and bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. The Word of God has transformational power. An anthropologist was carrying out studies in the Fiji Islands. He entered into conversation with the tribal chief. Now, the anthropologist was an atheist, and he was expressing 
Disappointment that the tribal chief and his tribe had become Christians. He said, it's a pity you've allowed yourself to be taken in by these missionaries. No one in our world believes the Bible anymore. We all know it's foolishness. The old chief paused for a few moments and then he said, foolish? Look over there at that rock. On that rock we used to smash the head of our enemies. And you see that furnace next to it? In that furnace, we used to burn the bodies of our enemies. If not for the missionaries sharing the word of God with us, you would not leave this place alive. You should thank the Lord for the word of God. Otherwise, you'd be our meal tonight. The words of the Bible have a power and a purpose wherever, whenever, however God's word is preached or read. God has a purpose for the hearer and for the reader. And it's not just Isaiah. Paul said it too as he wrote the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. The word is so powerful, even Mahatma Gandhi observed, you Christians have in your keeping a document with enough dynamite in it to blow the whole civilization to bits, to turn society upside down, to bring peace to this war-torn world. But you read it as if it were just good literature and nothing else. Gandhi had observed that the Bible changes lives and events. Going back again to Charles Colson, who established Prison Fellowship. One of the early programs that Prison Fellowship developed was called was spiritual boot camps in prisons across America called Interchange Freedom Initiative. At one point, Colson wrote about the program, and he said, We have, since the beginning, contended that these demonstrate the truth of the gospel in transforming lives. In 2003, the first peer-reviewed academic studies validated our claims The University of Pennsylvania researchers reported that IFI graduates had only an 8% reincarceration rate versus 67% nationally. I love the story of Barry Taylor. Barry was a one-time rock musician, became a pastor. He was part of the 60s and 70s anti-war, drop-out, do-your-own-thing kind of rebellion. Some of you were part of the 60s. You... Maybe more of a part than I was. You, you know what I'm talking about. That's the kind of guy that Barry was. But then one of his good friends became what they called a Jesus freak. Eventually, Barry told Philip Yancey, I thought my friend was crazy. So I started searching the Bible in order to find arguments to refute him. For the life of me, I could not figure out why God was concerned with the bent wing of a dove or why I would give an order to kill, say, 40,000 Amalekites. And who were the Amalekites anyway? Fortunately, I kept reading, plowing through all the hard books. When I got to the New Testament, I couldn't find a way around Jesus. So I became a Jesus freak too. My files are filled with countless similar stories. Part of the bedrock of ministry that has kept me preaching is that year after year, someone will come to me or they will write or they will call and I'll say, you know, when you preached this sermon, when you said this, when you read that passage, here's what happened to me. And I'll think to myself, that's not what I meant when I said that. 
That's not what I preached, but it's what God did. He took it. He used it because it's the word they needed to hear, and He accomplished His purpose in them. Why do you think the Gideons are so passionate about putting Bibles where people can get them? Because when they open the Bible and read, their lives can be transformed and changed. It's time to bring all of this home. Let me begin bringing it home by reaffirming today that I will continue to stand on the Word of God. I don't need to earn my way into heaven. The way has been paid. How do I know? The Bible tells me so. I don't need to worry about getting my identity from peers or family or friends or the media or people in power. My worth and approval comes from the fact that I'm a child of the King. I'm a brother of Jesus Christ who died to save me. How do I know? The Bible tells me so. I don't need to be perfect. I'm covered by grace, and I have all I need for godliness. How do I know? The Bible tells me so. I don't need to fear being overpowered by those who oppose me and those who despise Jesus. For greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. How do I know? The Bible tells me so. I don't need the media to tell me what is truth or to do all the fact-checking. Jesus is the truth. How do I know? The Bible tells me so. My hope is not in government or politics or people or the lottery. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. How do I know? The Bible tells me so. If people oppose me or bully me or refuse to love me, I don't need to despair because Jesus loves me. This I know. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. I don't need to get an earthly crown or trophy because there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness on that day. How do I know? The Bible tells me so. I don't need the approval of others because the day will come when I will hear the approval of Jesus who will say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of my kingdom. How do I know? The Bible tells me so. So I ask you this morning, where do you stand? How will you handle the word of God? It is ultimately confrontational. If you never hear it, you never read it, in one sense, it will do nothing for you except condemn you, and you'll find that out too late. But if you read it, if you take it seriously, you must handle it with care, for it is God's supernatural word. I think it's extremely significant that Almost the last words in the Bible in Revelation 22, 18 and 19 address this. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from the scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. Owen Strachan, who is Senior Fellow for the Family Research Council Center for Biblical Worldview, has written, either the whole thing is God's speech, God's revelation, God's testimony of himself and his ways and his works and what he has done in history through his people, or else you're just doing theological buffet. You're just slicing and dicing like Thomas Jefferson did hundreds of years ago. You're literally taking a pair of scissors and you're snipping out the parts you don't like from the Bible 
and giving yourself your own understanding of the Bible as a product. Friends, we cannot pick and choose. It's all or nothing. Either the whole Bible is true or it is not. And to tamper with and reject the Word of God is to reject Jesus to whom the Word points, for He is the living Word of God. So handle it with care. Because this supernatural Word will get into you, go after you, and change you forever. If you take the Bible seriously... Embracing what God says at face value, your life will never be the same. Second Timothy three sixteen and 17. Every part of Scripture is God-breathed and useful one way or another. Every part. Showing us truth. Exposing our rebellion. Correcting our mistakes. Training us to live God's way. Through the Word, we are put together and shaped up for the tasks God has for us. That's why Jesus told the parable of building your house upon the sand or the rock. He said you build it on the rock. That rock is the Word. It's the supernatural Word of God. That rock is Jesus. It is my hope that we can go away from here today and say, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. But the bottom line is you must make a decision. How will you handle the supernatural Word? You have basically five options. One, you can ignore what it says. Second, you can trivialize it. Thirdly, you can deny the truth of it or even claim that it might be God's word but it's not sufficient of itself to address the issues of our day. Fourth, you can find fault with it, try to pick it apart. Or fifth, you can embrace it as God's true word, the ultimate truth. My challenge to you is to accept the Bible as God's word, as God's truth. Spend much time in it. Dive deeply into it. Live according to its precepts. And see what it does to you, for you, through you, in you, and around you. If it's not the truth, what do you have to lose? But if it is the truth, what will you gain? you will gain the heart of God. Allow me to pray in the spirit of Paul. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your supernatural word. When I think of all of this, I fall to my knees and pray to you, Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from your glorious unlimited resources, you will empower all who hear this word with inner strength through your spirit. So that then, our Lord Jesus Christ will make his home in their hearts as they trust in him. May the roots grow deep down into God's love and keep them strong. And may they have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep His love is. May they experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to fully understand. Then, then they will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. I pray this 
in the mighty, powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.